of Genesis. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And then moving along to uh, verse 16. It says, then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad and Irad fathered Mahujael and Mahujael fathered Methushael and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada and the name of the other, Zillah. And then down in verse 23 and following, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that point, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And then chapter 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived a hundred and thirty years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were eight hundred years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were nine hundred thirty years, and he died. When Seth had lived a hundred and five years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh eight hundred seven years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were nine hundred twelve years. And he died. Then going down to verse 18. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. And when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. 
Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. You may be seated and take a moment to reflect on God's word. There are uh, kindergarten uh, through second graders. You can leave through the back door. And uh, you will want to keep your, your Bible open to Genesis 4 and 5. So, as you can see, we're covering a lot of ground. Uh, we've been going through the book of Genesis, and last week we spoke about the fall, which is this just humongous event in the history of mankind, and this huge event in the scriptures. And then uh, next week, Paul's going to preach about the flood, which is this other massive event in the history of the world, in the history of the Bible. And in between, here I am. So I've got Genesis 4 and 5, and uh, in some ways, it's kind of an odd collection of of stories and genealogy and even a little bit of poetry. Uh, So it's kind of an an interesting section of scripture. And I thought, what what am I going to do with this? And so uh, what we're going to do is we're just going to look at this, and, and really it's, it's incredible what our text this morning says about the power and the promise and the glory of God. Because you see, last week uh, we talked about the fall, uh, you know, and then right within the first generation after Adam and Eve, after sin had touched Uh, the family of mankind. You see murder. You see uh, anger. You see envy. Uh, You see uh, people wandering. You see family conflict. You see the death of a child. Uh, It's incredible. And then through the rest of this passage, you see uh, broken marriages. You see broken society. I mean, just the picture in chapter 4 especially just seems to get darker and darker and darker. And I think the danger for us, as we're really sitting in the darkness looking at it, and and the danger for us just in our lives when you sit in places of darkness, when tragedy comes in or, I mean, gosh, you just flip on the news. You hear about another shooting or another tragedy or... Uh, something that that's happened what the danger for us is as we sit in the darkness and we see the darkness for what it is uh, is not so much that that we'd cease to believe that god exists but that we'd start to think that all that is who he is that that he's okay with it being that way this is, this is what, what C.S. Lewis says when he was going through a, a really difficult time in his life after the death of his wife. Uh, he wrote this book about it called The Grief Observed. And he's just brutally honest about uh, his own process of grieving and dealing with pain and suffering and doubt. And this is, this is what he says. He says, I don't think I'm in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. But the real danger when I sit in this darkness is is I start to believe some dreadful things about him. 
The conclusion that I'm really afraid of is not, well, there's no God after all, but the conclusion that all this, all this pain, all this heartbreak, all this evil, this is what God's really like. Stop fooling yourself. And I, and I think as we sit here and we reflect and we experience uh, pain and suffering, even as the Israelites, the first congregation that, that heard this as Moses was writing down the book of Genesis and, and teaching the Israelites about the history of the world, they're, they're sitting uh, after coming out of Egypt and coming out of all kinds of darkness. They're wondering, who is this God that's called us to follow him? Is he like that? Is, is the land where we're going like the land that we came from? And, and so what Moses is, is trying to do in this passage, I think, is to get crystal clear about the character of the God that is called his people. And, uh, to get crystal clear about the power and the promise of God, even in the midst of all the crazy conflict of human history. To say to us and to the people of Israel that the power of sin and death will never prevail against the promises of God. That's what I think we're going to see in this text today. So Moses is saying, okay, just remember, it gets really bad. It gets really bad after sin enters the world. And we'll see next week, it it gets even worse. But throughout all of it, we see there's a promise that God made and his promises, we can depend on them. His promises are sure. Because you remember in Genesis 3, after the fall happens, after Adam and Eve sinned, they've eaten of the fruit. God looks at the serpent and this is what he says in Genesis 3.15. He curses the serpent and then he says, I will put enmity, I'll put discord, I'll put violence between the serpent and the woman. And between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. So God's saying, okay, this is what human history is going to be like. The offspring of the serpent are going to do battle against the offspring of the woman. And the way, um, actually, the Hebrew writes it, it's not the word offspring, it's the word seed. So that the, the seed of the serpent is going to do battle, is going to be pitted against the seed of the woman. And you think... Well, that doesn't sound like a very good story. <laughs> you know, just good and evil are going to be fighting against each other all the time. But then God says something incredible. He says, and then the offspring of the woman, this is what it says in the NIV, serpent, he will crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. So one day there'll, there'll come a time in this conflict where the promised seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. That good will win out. And so God has sent his people out of the garden with this promise. That he will provide a seed from the woman that will finally win the battle for God's people. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. So as we hear that promise, we're wondering, okay, that's nice of God to make a promise. But can he keep his promise? Can we trust him that he's actually going to come through? And I think what we're going to see is yes, 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 over and over again, we see no matter how bad it gets, no matter how powerful sin and death is, the power of sin cannot prevail over the promise of God. 
And as we just fly through four and five, we're going to look at the power of sin, kind of the, the offspring of the serpent at work in the world. And we're going to see it in two parts. First, sin in here. We're going to look at the life of Cain and see kind of the power of sin in here in our own hearts. And then we're going to look at Lamech and his family and see the power of sin out there, its effect in society. And then finally, we're going to look at the line of Seth and we're going to see the greater power of God's promise. So first, let's open up uh, chapter four. And you see uh, that immediately the saga begins, (laughs) you know, the battle between the two seeds uh, begins. And it says, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore a son, an offspring, and his name was Cain. And then again, she had another offspring, uh, his brother Abel. And you see already the battle start to take place in humanity. And you've probably maybe heard the story of Cain and Abel before, but, but what I want us to look at here is that you know, in the garden... <laughs> When Eve is tempted to eat of the fruit, you know, she's tempted from outside. But Cain, when he's tempted, there's no outside voice goading him to kill his brother. All the evil, where does it come from? Right within himself. It's right there. He doesn't have to listen to a voice outside. He just has to listen to the voice inside his own head, inside his own heart. Um, if you look, you'll see that the interaction between uh, Cain and God and even his fall into temptation and sin in this passage really mirrors the same pattern of chapter three. You know, that God gives a command and then man chooses to rebel against the command and then there's consequences. And so what we learn here just first is, is that after original sin happens, sin ceases to be original anymore. It just keeps repeating the same pattern over and over and over again. Sin is unoriginal. Sin in our lives is the opposite of original. It's derivative. It's uncreative. It's, in fact, decreative. It decreates us and it decreates the world around us. So first, you see, uh, God gave a command to Adam and Eve, and then really to to all mankind. And the command was this, that we're supposed to reflect God's image. Remember, we're supposed to be his, we're his image bearers, and we're supposed to uh, be fruitful and be faithful. And we're supposed to extend his image across, remember, stretch the garden all across uh, the entire world. And so we're supposed to write out the character of God. This is what Michael Williams says in his book. Uh, We're supposed to write out the character of God in all our divinely designed and intended relationships. So humans were created, Cain, Abel, Adam, Eve, you, me, with this web of relationships around us. A relationship to God, a relationship to the created world, and a relationship to humanity. And what sin does, we'll see here, that when sin rises up in here, it distorts all those relationships. The picture's like, if you ever gone to eat ribs, you know, at a rib place, you go and what, there's sauce all over your hands. So you go and you can't touch anything, right? You got to wipe them off. Otherwise, if you touch anything, anything that you touch is going to be stained. And, and that's the case here. Sin has so stained us 
that every relationship that we enter into is, is tainted, is, is touched uh, by sin. First, let's, let's just look briefly at the vertical relationship uh, between Cain and God. You know, remember, we're supposed to reflect and enjoy and worship God. And see, instead of uh, enjoying God, there's, there's a rebellion and suspicion. You see that Cain uh, brought an offering to God. And then his brother brought an offering too. But Cain's offering, you compare it to his brother, his brother brought what? The firstborn of his flock. And then he also brought the fat portion. So he gave God the very best. And then what did Cain do? He just kind of gave him some some vegetables. (laughs) Hey, I got this stuff. I'm supposed to give you stuff, God. Here's some stuff for you. That's essentially what it seems like it's saying about Cain's offering. But it's not necessarily about the offering. It's about the heart of the person behind it. It seems like Cain is not really interested in reflecting and honoring and worshiping God. He's out for himself. He's out for his own glory. And you can tell because he becomes jealous of his brother. It says that uh, he saw that God accepted his brother's offering and he became angry and his face fell. So there's, there's envy, there's strife. And then look what God tries to do. God intervenes with Cain and he speaks to him in mercy. He, he, God's always moving toward a sinful, broken humanity. And he's, he's trying to intervene. And God's saying, don't give in to sin, Cain. Don't give in. And, and so what we would say is, great, listen to God, Cain. Listen, repent. He knows what you're thinking. Don't go through with it. But Cain, he doesn't listen to God. He says, thanks for the advice, God. I'm going to do what I want to do. And so you see already that that, that first primary relationship, when that gets stained, when that gets broken, all the other relationships start to break as well. So he moves out, and he first he speaks against his brother. Then, very quickly, it's just like with Eve. She saw she took, she ate. It's the same thing with Cain. He spoke to Abel, and Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. In one verse, just like that. Murder was invented in the course of six or seven words. And so already the vertical relationship is distorted, then the horizontal relationship with our brothers and sisters gets distorted. Remember what Paul said the other week, that, that sin transforms Human relationships were designed to be my life for yours into your life for mine. I cut you down so I can build myself up. And you see, when God goes to engage with Cain afterwards, that he's totally unrepentant. You know, that he goes to talk, God goes to talk to Cain and he says, where's your brother? And Cain says, I I don't know. Am I in charge of my brother? Am I my brother's keeper? Am I responsible for him? Am I responsible for his well-being? And what do we want to say to Cain? Yes, of course you are. God made you responsible for all of creation. You're supposed to care for it. You're supposed to keep it. You're supposed to make it fruitful. But what did you do? You cut your brother down. It's a complete reversal of our intended role. 
Do you see? We're supposed to protect. We're supposed to provide for. We're supposed to steward each other and the world that we live in. And instead, he ends the life of his brother. And it, it, I cannot imagine. Do you see what, what God says afterwards? He says, what have you done? I, I can't imagine what God's voice sounded like. When he said, what have you done? It's not that God doesn't know what he's done. God understands. God knows all things. He sees all things. But he's saying, do you know what you have done? You have done something that's so contrary to your design. You've done something that runs so hard against the grain of creation that now even the natural world is going to curse you back. Do you see? So the relationship between God and man gets stained, then between man and man gets stained, and then look, the relationship between man and creation gets stained as well. God says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. God sees everything, and he hears the voice of the innocent. And not only does God see, the world sees. The world witnesses the evil that takes place on it, And it cries out to God saying, heal this, make this right, fix this, God, please. I love this when the Apostle Paul says that all of creation groans when it waits for the sons of God to be revealed, for God to come back and put everything right. That's what we're seeing here. Creation is groaning and crying out for justice. And so... Cain is cursed from the earth. And I mean, this a whole sermon could be on this one little point. But the idea is, I think, is that the, the world, the natural world that we live in, is not merely natural. It's not merely physical. Our bodies are not merely uh, uh, chemicals and atoms all strung together. That there's this spiritual component that's running through, that's shot through absolutely everything in creation. That all of creation, it says, is charged with God's image and God's glory. And so that anything we do has this echoing effect in the world. And God says, what you've done by killing your brother is so unnatural. It's so wrong. That now even creation itself is turned against you. And so I think um, the thought for us is, oh, I mean, Cain, if you had just stopped when God intervened at the first point, right? And you had the thought, Cain, you, you didn't have to go through with it. And so for us... For you and I, we, we look at Cain and we look at how God intervened mercifully and we just say, do not give sin any foothold in your life. Do not make any compromise with sin because the little spit, littlest bit of envy, the littlest bit of anger, which is, I mean, who doesn't struggle with that? Everyone struggles with anger. Everyone gets jealous. Um, If you give it its place in your heart, if you let it sit there, unrepented of, unconfessed, what does it do? The seed of the serpent turns into a tree, and it takes over your whole life. 
And <laughs> this is what the Puritan John Owen says, and I love this. He says, if you are not killing sin, sin will be killing you. Do not make a truce with sin. And if you, you just hear one thing for me today from this lesson is that do not make a compromise with sin. Make progress against it constantly. Fight against it. Uh, letting the littlest bit of sin into your life is like cracking open the window in a submarine. <laughs> it's just not a good idea. It will, water will flood in. Death will flood into your life. Don't even open it a crack. Don't even give it a little bit of breathing room. Be killing sin or sin will be killing us. And I just imagine Eve, how her little choice to listen to the serpent, how it echoed through her family. And as God told her or Cain told her or Adam had to come in and tell her what had happened to her son Abel. Can you imagine what that felt like? You did what to your brother? He's dead? And then to hear the voice of the lying serpent echo back through her mind when he said, you shall not surely die. Just eat of it. Just taste it. You won't die. And just hear that lie running through her mind as she saw the body of her slain son. I can't imagine. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing us. So, even the smallest bit of sin in here doesn't just stay in here. So sin breeds death, not just in our own hearts, but but all around us. And then if you look here, when it comes to the seventh generation, when it gets to Lamech and his family, seven generations... Uh, past Adam and Eve, this, all of society is completely distorted. Let's just look. It starts in uh, verse 16 here. It says, Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. He settled in the land of Nod. So Cain started a family, and, and he began to have offspring. And then uh, he had a son uh, down below. Methushael had Lamech. And it says, Lamech took two wives. We'll talk about that in a second. And then in verse 23, listen to Lamech's song. Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. This is the song that mankind sings now. Remember Adam's song in Genesis 2? God brings him Eve, and Adam sings this song, which we thought was... Not the most creative song, but hey, it was his first shot, humanity's first shot of a song. He said, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, at last, here's the helper I've been looking for. It's a song of gratitude and thanksgiving to God. It's, it's praising God, praising God's creation of the woman. Thank you so much, God. Who's Lamech's song praising? Adam's song was celebrating God's gift of the woman. Lamech's song is celebrating the gift of himself. This is the second human song recorded in Scripture, and Lamech's on the stage singing about himself, telling everyone, look at me, look at how great I am. John Frame says, All things in creation, plants, animals, persons, they're appointed to be covenant servants 
to obey God's law and to be instruments of his purpose. Everything's supposed to worship God and serve him and obey him. Psalm 119 says, all things serve you, God. But in sin, Lamech says, all things serve me. All things are for me. Everyone look at me. Everyone fear me. And in this kind of society, uh, a, a society where sin out there just reigns and runs rampant, people push away all limits on personal pleasure and power. Do you see first the limits on pleasure? It's right there. It's in, it's in verse 19 where it says, Lamech, what? Took two wives. Hey, having one wife is great. But two wives? That would be really great. And who says I can't do it? No mention of God here. Man's completely a law unto himself. And so he says, I feel like doing it, so I'm going to do it. I don't care how it makes them feel. I don't care what it does to my family. If it makes me feel good, I'm going to do it. And by the way, if, if anyone ever tries to tell you that the Bible is like full of errors and untrustworthy because of how it uh, condones polygamy, has anyone ever, you ever heard that old chestnut? Someone says, well, yeah, I mean, the Bible's like so repressive. It, you know, all the heroes in the Bible, they all had all these wives and stuff. Well, that's not entirely true. The first instance that we have of polygamy in the Bible, of multiple wives, who's doing it? The worst villain in the chapter, Lamech, this murderous, rebellious man. He's, he, he's the first one to do it. So uh, in no way is polygamy ever seen as something other than a complete distortion of God's plan and a result of not God's intended order, but a result of the fall. So just be aware of that if you come across that and just say, yeah, Lamech did that. God did not intend uh, for that to be what human society was built on. But you see, even the, the foundation of human society, the first little human society of the family, a man and a woman just partnering to be fruitful and to tend the garden. You see, even that, that, that most foundational unit of human society starts to get twisted uh, as people put off all limits on pleasure. And then second, not only in pleasure are people casting off restraint, in power too. Look at Lamech. In his song, he's glorying in his own strength. He's boasting that he doesn't need anyone to protect him. He's saying, I'm a killer. No one's going to mess with me. See how he's, he's glorying in unforgiveness, in mercilessness. He says, if, if you do anything against me, I'm going to retaliate seven be sevenfold. Seven times sevenfold. I mean, can, can, you, can you imagine how terrifying it would be to be in Lamech's family? And notice he's saying, hey, listen to me, wives. How he's ordering them around. He said, hey, you wives of Lamech, you belong to me. I'm going to tell you how it is. You should be afraid of me. Everyone else should be afraid of me. He's glorying in his own mercilessness. This is what Francis Schaeffer says. He says, here is humanistic culture without God. It's egotism and praise centered in man. This culture has lost the concept not only of God, but as man as one who loves his brother. So everything is perverted 
Everything is inverted. Everything focuses back on the self. And what we learn here is that when God moves away from a society, when a family, when a people cease to worship the one true God, they don't stop worshiping. You keep worshiping, but instead of worshiping the one true God, what do you worship? Myself. For us, in our own hearts, when your worship of God is waning, what do you worship? You worship something. You worship power. You worship pleasure. You worship yourself. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, what are we worshiping today? What are you thinking about? What has your heart? If, if, if you were going to sing a song right now about what's most beautiful, what's most compelling, what's most important to you, what would it be? What, what really has captured your heart? Is it God or is it something else? I mean, you'll know in those moments when you don't have anything to think about, when your mind's just idle, what do you think about? What do you run towards? And do you see the danger do you see the destruction that happens when, when we focus our praise on ourselves instead of God? So society looks pretty bad right now, doesn't it, by, by, towards the end of chapter 4. I mean, not only has sin in here totally dominated people's lives, sin out there is totally destroying people's relationships with each other, destroying the family. And it, and it looks like, well... I think Abel was was the seed of the woman that was supposed to crush the serpent. So he's dead now. What's going to happen? <laughs> Looks like the serpent crushed him. And then right when it's darkest, this ray of light breaks out and shines. This is what it says here at the end of chapter 4. Right after Lamech does his big boastful speech, he says, and then Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son, and she called him Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. You can imagine the people of God, you can imagine Adam and Eve going, God, what are you going to do? I mean, the world is, is going completely haywire. And it looked like the line of promise was going to go through Abel, but now Abel's dead. So what are you going to do? God, are you going to come through? God, are you going to keep your promises? And God says, of course. Here's another seed. Here's another offspring. There's nothing that the enemy can do to thwart my plan. That's what God's saying. So look, he provides another offspring. Seth. And then Seth has a son named Enosh. And then it goes through in chapter 5 of all the genealogy of Seth's descendants. And as you're looking at that, you're probably going, is he really going to preach a genealogy? And yes, I'm just going to give you two little uh, tidbits from this genealogy, which I think are really important and really helpful and really encouraging and really fascinating. Now you read this genealogy and it starts to get a little repetitive, right? You know, it says Seth lived in chapter six or verse six, chapter five. Seth lived 105 years. He fathered Enosh. 
Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years, had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Oh, then Enosh had lived 90 years. He fathered Kenan. Uh, after he fathered Kenan, another 815 years. He had other sons and daughters. All the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. And it goes on and on and on. And it starts to form this pattern, so that if you're reading it, you just kind of flow through it. You know, okay, he's going to live so many years, he's going to have a child, and he's going to have other sons and daughters, he's going to live some more time, and then he's going to die. And it just kind of goes through. And the first thing I want you to notice that that's really interesting is that this isn't just like any old family tree, where it's just talking about all the descendants of Seth. Look what it's doing. See, see what it's doing? Each time it names a successive generation, it narrows. Because it said, Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years. And guess what? He didn't just have Enosh, he had other sons and daughters. What happened to them? The Bible doesn't say, because it's not focused on the other sons and daughters. It's focused on the line of the promise. Do you see how it's narrowing and it's focusing you? To say, here's the descendant that I want you to pay attention to. And then he's going to have a big family. But there's one out of that family that I want you to pay attention to. Watch him. See what happens. Then it goes down. You see? He's saying there is. There's this line of the promise. There's this line of the seed. That's, it's like a silver thread that's being weaved through all of the human community. And if you trace it, you can see, if you read Matthew chapter 1, you'll see. It goes all the way up to the promised seed of the woman, Christ. And so then it goes through, and it goes at the seventh generation. It gets to a son of Jared in verse 21, Enoch. And then something else unique and unexpected happens. It says, after Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God. It doesn't just say he lived after he fathered Enoch. He walked with God for 300 years, and he had other sons and daughters. And it says, thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And what you would expect if you're just going through each successive generation, what's it supposed to say? All the days were blank, and he died. That's what happens every single time before. Oh, this guy lived, all of his days were 895 years or 906 years, and he died. But then with Enoch, it says, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Remember the consequence for Adam and Eve? eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God said, if you eat of it, you will die. Death will come upon the human family. And what do we see in the first generation? Death. Death spreads out. What do we see in the seventh generation from Adam in the line of Cain? We see death, destruction, darkness, right? But now, in the seventh generation from the line of Seth, no death. Death is removed. I don't know how, but death is removed. This is what it says in uh, Hebrews, which lists Enoch along with Abel as, as an example of a forefather in the faith, someone who trusted God's promises. 
It says of Enoch, through faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And then he was not found because God had taken him. And before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. Do you see that? God is pushing pause on the curse for Enoch. He's saying, hey, it's not completely hopeless. Pay attention to this line. Pay attention to this silver thread. Pay attention to what I'm doing in the midst of human history, in the midst of all this violence and all this darkness. Pay attention. And what did Enoch do that was so spectacular? I mean, did he do a ton of miracles? Did he, was he, does it say that he was the greatest father in human history? Does it say that, you know, he was the greatest farmer? Or does it say that he was the greatest evangelist? No, it didn't. There's nothing superlative about Enoch's life except he walked with God. And I'm so grateful that scripture at least gives us a little bit of something of Enoch. And, and I, I look forward to the day in glory when I'll just get to ask Enoch what that was like, walking with God. I imagine it must have been like what Adam and God would do in the garden, just walking in the cool of the day. Just, just walking. You, you really get to know someone well in a walk. In a run, you can't really talk that much. I mean, at least me, I'm totally out of breath. But in a walk, you, you can really have some good conversations, can you not? So Enoch was walking with God, just taking his time with God, just enjoying God's company. And then at some point, God said, you know what? Let's just keep this conversation going, but we'll, we'll just go straight to my place. What do you think? And so Enoch didn't have to taste death. And the thing that I wondered, actually, when I was reading this, I was like, isn't that unjust of God to take away the curse of sin? I mean, can God really do that? I mean, why did... It's, he's a sinner. I mean, Enoch is a sinner, just like all of the descendants, right? I mean, Adam and Eve, they had to die. Everyone else had to die. It's, it's the just punishment for what they did. But God was able to remain just and take away death for Enoch because Enoch, he didn't taste death because someone else tasted death for him. And Enoch, his whole life, was looking forward to the promised seed, the one who would come, who would taste death for God's people. Who would bear the curse and the punishment of sin for God's people. And so because Christ tasted death for Enoch, Enoch didn't have to taste death for Enoch. And for us, because Christ tasted death for us. Because Christ bore the punishment of sin and death in yours and I in my place. We don't have to bear it ourselves. Amen? Amen? That's the beauty of this. Do you, do you see the faithfulness of God, even in the midst of all the darkness? That there was a people who heard God's promises and they trusted in God's promises and they told the story to their kids. They told the story to the next generation and they kept the flame burning. I imagine it was really, really dark, spiritually dark and just physically dark in human civilization at that time. I mean, no electric lights, 
People sitting outside, maybe in tents, maybe in caves, who knows? But they're sitting, and in the midst of all the darkness, there's this one family that's huddled around the light. Huddled around a fire, maybe. Just just a, a single flame in the midst of a totally dark and depraved world. And they're saying, remember the story of what God did? Remember the promise that he made? Remember that there's going to be one who comes who's going to crush the head of the serpent. He's going to deliver us all. Remember that. Trust in him. Walk with him. And for us, for the Israelites, who are walking in the desert in complete darkness, and what did they have to lead them? Just the light of God's presence, the fire in front of them. They just follow the light. Let it... He let the light lead him through the darkness and trust and stay close and walk with God. And what do we do? We stay close to God. We trust in him. Uh, We walk with him. We try to obey him. We tell the story to the next generation. But we don't just have a promise to look forward to. We can look back and we can really see Christ did come. And he did taste death for all of us. But then he conquered death and he rose from the grave. So now, you and I don't have to be afraid when we walk in a dark world. We don't have to worry that maybe God won't keep his promises. We have to worry that maybe sin and death and the serpent, they're going to win. Because we know Christ is one. And he's coming back to claim a people for himself. And he said, in the meantime, just look back. Trust in what I've done. Trust in me and look forward to the day when I gather you together to be my people, to walk with me. So let's pray.